Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Somehow you knew. Good morning, everybody. Glad you're with us. Welcome to those of you who are tuning in online or listening to podcasts. My name's Phil Nauer. I have the privilege serving as the lead pastor of this group of folks here. We call Echo Community Church, and we're glad that uh, you chose to be with us this morning. We're continuing our summer series called Short Letters, Deep Meeting. And uh, one of the things we like to do here at Echo, something we've landed on, is we spend the majority of our Sundays At least three quarters of the Sundays throughout the year, we teach through the Bible, a book at a time, chapters at a time, verses at a time. Over the summer, we know there's a lot of people traveling and coming and going. And so if you teach just one book and you miss a couple weeks for vacation, we don't want you to get lost in it. And so we've chosen that our pastors kind of split up some of the shorter letters that Paul writes in the New Testament because we can tackle those in a week or two on each one. So last week, or two weeks ago, actually, we studied Philemon. Today, we'll study Paul's letter to Titus, and then uh, moving through uh, August, we'll be studying 2 John and 3 John, so moving over to a couple of letters that John wrote. Today, Titus, and one of the resources that I've introduced to you uh, some time ago, but that we keep coming back to regularly, is the Bible Project. This group of men and women are really gifted at creating a visual way of teaching deep concepts in a really efficient time through uh, really good animation and narration. And so we're going to take just a few minutes this morning before we read the first half of the letter of Titus together. We're going to actually watch this short video introduction of the letter of Titus from the Bible Project. So we'll check that out and then we'll unwind some of it together. Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was a Greek follower of Jesus who was for years a trusted co-worker and traveling companion of Paul's. He had helped Paul in a number of crisis situations in the past, and in this letter we discover that Paul had assigned him the task of going to Crete, a large island off the coast of Greece, to restore order to a network of house churches. Now, Cretan culture was notorious in the ancient world. One of the Greek words for being a liar was kretidzo, to be a Cretan. These people were infamous for treachery and greed. Most of the men on the island had served as mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder, and the island cities were known as being unsafe, plagued by violence and sexual corruption. However, the island of Crete had many strategic harbors, and they serviced cities all over the ancient Mediterranean Sea. And so, from Paul's point of view, Crete was the perfect place to start a network of churches. Now, we don't know the details, but somehow these churches came under the influence of corrupt Cretan leaders. They said they were Christians, but they were ruining the churches. And so Paul assigned Titus with the task of going there to set things straight, and this letter provided the instructions. It has a pretty straightforward design. After a brief introduction, Paul gives Titus clear instructions about his tasks in the church. He then offers guidance about the new kind of household and then about the new kind of humanity that the gospel could create in these Cretan communities. Paul then closes the letter with some final greetings. So Paul opens the whole thing by reminding Titus that his message as an apostle is about the hope of eternal life, that is, the life of the new creation, that is available starting now through Jesus the Messiah. And this hope was promised long ago by the God who does not lie. So Paul then addresses Titus with a twofold task. He says the first one is to appoint new leaders for each church community, a team of what he calls elders mature husbands or fathers whose way of life is totally different from Cretan culture. They are to be known for integrity, total devotion to Jesus, for self-control and generosity, both in their families and in the community at large. And these new leaders are to teach the good news about Jesus and replace the corrupt leaders who need to be confronted. That's Titus's second task. Paul identifies the teachers as those of the circumcision. In other words, they were ethnically Jewish Cretans who said that they followed Jesus, but similar to the problems in Galatia, these people demanded that non-Jewish Christians be circumcised and follow the laws of the Torah if they really wanted to become followers of the Jewish Messiah. Paul says that they're obsessed with Jewish myths and human commands. And to top it off, they're just in the church leadership business to make money. 
And so while these leaders claim to know God, their Cretan way of life denies him. They have to be dealt with. And this leads Paul into the next section. Because of these corrupt leaders, many Christians in these churches now have homes and personal lives that are a total wreck. And three different times, Paul highlights the result of all this. The message about Jesus is discredited. Their non-Christian neighbors now have good cause to make evil accusations. And all of this makes the teaching about God our Savior totally unattractive and not compelling to anybody. So Paul paints a picture of the ideal Cretan household that is devoted to Jesus. It would be elderly men and women who are full of integrity and self-control so they can become models of character to the young people. And the young women shouldn't be sleeping around and avoiding marriage as was fashionable in Crete at the time, but rather they should be looking for faithful partners so they can raise stable, healthy families. And the young men are to do the same. They're to be known as productive, healthy citizens. Christian slaves on Crete were in a unique position because we know that because of the gospel they were treated as equals in Paul's church communities. However, there was a danger that they would use that equality as license to disrespect their masters and then become associated with slave rebellions which would further discredit the Christian message. You can see Paul negotiating a fine line here. He believes that the gospel about Jesus needs to prove its redemptive power in the public square if it's really going to transform Cretan culture. And that's not going to happen through social upheaval or by Christians cloistering away from urban life. The Christian message will be compelling to Cretans when Christians fully participate in public life, when their lives and homes look similar on the surface. Because after a closer look, their neighbors will discover that Christians live by a totally different value system system out of devotion to a totally different God. Hopefully that's useful to just give you a quick overview of where we're going in this letter with Titus. I will let you know today I'm not going to zoom in on details from a three-foot view. We'll probably be more of a 10,000-foot view on some of the main concepts in Titus today. But I know a lot of you like to dig into the detail like I do, and I've made that available to you, put a lot more um, writing and thought into uh, the study guide that's available for you for free for download. If you want, you can have it. Just scan it, download it into PDF, and you can have access to, to all of that. Um, if, if I had to summarize that three and a half minutes into just a few bullet points, Titus is a human being. He's a man. So this is a letter written from Paul the Apostle to Titus. Titus was Greek. He was not Jewish. So that made him unique on Paul's team because... Titus had another contemporary by the name of Timothy, another pastor on Paul's team. Timothy, compared to Titus, Timothy was from a Jewish family. And so uh, Paul wrote three letters in this period of time, you know, probably late 63 AD to early 64 AD. He wrote 1 Timothy, then chronologically he wrote Titus, and then he wrote 2 Timothy. And a lot of times we group those three letters together, we call them the pastoral letters, the letters that Paul wrote to his young pastors who were somewhere off in the world trying to lead churches. And so this is part of those pastoral epistles. If I had to pick one word to summarize the whole theme, this is important, I want you to grab this, it would be order, O-R-D-E-R, -E order. Paul talks about the necessity for Titus to implement order among the churches on the island of Crete, order among their elders, pastors, and leaders, Orders in the homes of the Cretan Christians that would lead to a new communal order being established and exemplified all over the island. What is the opposite of order? Disorder. And the Bible uses another word for that. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 14. Chaos. Life does not naturally drift towards order. It drifts towards chaos. And I know most of us don't really crave, Lord, just bring more order in my life because that sounds like structure, authority, leadership. And I want you to know that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. But what we learn in reading this letter is that Paul recognizes Christians don't know what they don't know. And so in order for Christians to get a handle on how to live a godly life, they have to be taught. They have to be put in order. In fact, in verse 4 is where I lift out the idea that I use to understand this. And we'll talk about it more in a second. But Paul lets us know. He says, Titus, 
I left you on Crete to complete the work. That phrase, complete the work in the New Living Translation, is not inaccurate, but it's not the, the, I think it's not the most precise way we can understand what Paul reminds Titus he was supposed to do, complete the work. If we go back to the oldest Greek manuscripts we have, Pastor, what's a Greek manuscript? Why don't we just go back to the original letter? Well, the reason we don't have the original letter from Paul to Titus is because Paul's amanuensis didn't use ink or paper that would survive from then until today. It would disintegrate over time. Nothing survived. The originals didn't survive. But early Christians had enough foresight to think, hmm, this letter's pretty useful. We'd be better off copying it letter for letter, word for word, using ink and techniques that will make it preserved through history. Those are manuscripts. And so if we go back to the oldest manuscripts, the Greek word used in that letter here is the word epidiortho. It's found only one time in the whole New Testament. It's Greek word 1930, for those of you that like to nerd out on that stuff. Now, epid doesn't mean much to me, but that word ortho sounds familiar to me. Have you heard any English words that start with the prefix ortho? Orthopedic. What else? Come on, parents who had to take out a, yeah, orthodontists. And that's exactly where that that, that's exactly the connotation here. The only time in the New Testament, essentially, Paul is assigning Titus the responsibility of being a spiritual orthodontist for the, for the Christians on the Isle of Crete. He's supposed to straighten them out. Nat King Cole, the great theologian, <laughs> sang a song way back before most of you were born. Straighten up and fly right. The message that Titus is supposed to bring to the island of Crete is it's time for us to be straightened up. We've got to get aligned. And that message is supposed to come to the church, but he's supposed to start. Paul says, I need you to start off straightening out the church leaders. Because if we can straighten them out, now we can deal with straightening out the church life. And if we can straighten out the church life, now we can talk about straightening out the Christian homes. And if the Christian homes get straightened out and they don't live away in seclusion, but we open up our Christian lives and our Christian homes for the world to interact with and relate to, they'll see into a life and they'll want their crooked lives to be straightened out the way ours have been. And so this letter is a how-to manual from Paul to one of his pastors on the island of Crete about how to inspire the Cretan Corinthians to straighten out their lives. So, you know, when you think of Titus, think of Titus, the spiritual orthodontist. That's how I think about him. So let me just, uh, let me read the first four verses. And for each of these sections, I just zoomed in on one sentence. You know, I like to stop at every word, but I can't do that in the amount of time that we have. But uh, I, I drew out a couple sentences that really jumped out to me that I'll expand a little bit further. But let me read the beginning of his letter to you, verses 1 through 4. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the underline I added. That's not in your Bible. I added this. To teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Let me read that phrase again. God's chosen me to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. That was a comparison to Zeus, who the island really held up as this is the main God that we should, you know, he's, he's awesome. They love to tell stories about how under, underhanded and seductive he was. And Paul's like, no, the real God is not like Zeus at all. He's known for not lying. So that would have resonated with them. Um, verse 3, and now at just the right time, he's revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It's by command of God, our Savior, that I've been entrusted with this work for him. I'm writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. When he says true son in the faith, he doesn't mean Titus is his biological son from a no longer existing marriage. Paul describes people at times as his son in the faith, meaning that Paul was the one whose personal ministry was responsible for them coming to Jesus. So Paul's presentation of the gospel to Titus personally led to Titus's conversion. He says, may God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. 
what jumps out to me in this section is that Paul, in this later stage of his ministry, he's been a Christian for almost three decades now, is getting a better and better and more mature understanding of his purpose on the earth. And I hope that's the truth for you. I hope that every day you walk with Jesus, you become a little more clear as to why you're here, what you were made for, what you're to be about, what assignment and, and resources God has given you to live out this life. It's hard to understand that the moment you get saved. But I hope that over time, you have an ever-increasing awareness and confidence of God's purpose specifically for you. Paul gets it here, and he summarizes it this way in verse 2. I underlined, underlined. He says, God has chosen me to teach people the truth which leads to godly living. That's a mouthful. Paul starts off by saying, God chose me. I did not volunteer to be a missionary. I did not volunteer to be an apostle. God chose me, and it was my choice then to either say yes to that call or to be rebellious against it. I want you to know God has chosen me to be a pastor. I know God's chosen James. God's chosen Zach. God may have chosen others of you to, to follow that crew. I tell you, with what I know now after doing this for 25 years, if I knew that back then, I would not have volunteered to be a pastor. It, you know, the, the little, you know, the little two-paragraph synopsis of what it is and all that type of stuff, I would have picked something different. But I didn't choose to be a pastor. God chose me. He called me. He didn't force me to do it, but I knew he called me. I'm teetering on wanting to tell that whole story. I'll save it for another day. But I, re I remember, of all the things I've forgotten in my life, I remember that very short, compressed few weeks of my senior year in high school when I sensed God was calling me to the ministry, and I also sensed that I was resisting it big time. I did not want to. I grew up in a ministry family. And so I not only saw all the good sides of ministry, I saw all of the pressures and the expectations and the hurts of ministry that my parents and my family carried. And I'm kind of like, I don't want to go down that road. Let me pick something else. But I ultimately said yes to Jesus and put me on a pathway that I'm still on today. And I love what I do because I've been chosen to do this. And if God chooses us, for whatever he chooses you to do. He'll not only give you the resource to do it, but there's a unique fulfillment that, and a satisfaction of just knowing that you're doing what you were made to do that can't be replaced by anything else. And I enjoy that. And I would not enjoy that same. There's other things I could do. There's other things you could do. But I sense God's pleasure in doing what I was made to do. And that's a unique benefit of being in the center of God's will. And Paul recognized that I was chosen. Here's what he says he was chosen to do. I was chosen, and there's a verb in there, verse 2, if we could go back to that on the screen. I was chosen to teach. Paul uses one verb at the center of what his life ministry is. And he gets more exact the older he gets. And I love that he summed, he summed it down. Of all the things I've been chosen to do, I recognize at the center of the action I'm supposed to be doing is teaching. I'm supposed to be teaching. And that's important because Paul recognizes there's a curriculum that's supposed to get through me to people that if they're not taught, they won't catch naturally as they age. That's what you need teaching for. You need to be taught things that you won't just get naturally as you age. You have to be taught. My wife and I have two boys. We are now very aware they have to be taught not only to go in and take a shower. Don't get nervous. We recognize the older they get, the more specific we need to be about exactly how to mechanically go about doing a satisfactory job of taking care of one's own hygiene. Do I need to go any further into that? I hope not. I'm sorry elementary school has failed you, so I'm not going to enlighten you this morning. But we recognize you don't just naturally understand that. That would be nice. But sometimes we don't know what we don't know, and someone needs to teach us because life just won't supply that to us naturally. Paul says, I need to teach people. And then he gives you the curriculum. It's two words. Do you see it in there? What's the curriculum Paul feels chosen to teach? The truth. 
We could spend a whole morning on that, right? What he's talking about is the true, stubborn, historically objective realities of who Jesus is and what he did and why it matters. The truth. He says, I am called to teach people the truth. And then here's this awesome clinching phrase he puts on the end. That I wish, I mean, there's a whole book you could write just on this phrase. To teach them the truth. And what benefit do you have? He's telling you why you're here for 90 minutes on a Sunday. This is supposed to be the primary objective for all of us. Is to learn the truth. And how does it benefit you? It's in here. How does, how does good, biblical, truthful teaching benefit you, the listener? Tell me, according to this verse, what's the answer? Teaches you how to. Don't you like how-tos? A year ago, that was one of the tips they got. You want your YouTube videos to be watched more? Start them with how-to. How-to fix the leaky pipe. How-to fix the leaky drain. How-to do a French braid while blindfolded. How-to, you know, all the different. I never watched that one. No need, right? How to? Paul says, my purpose on this earth is to teach people the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Do you want to live a godly life? Do you? Do you want to? What's another way of saying that? What's a godly life? Simple. I'll give it to you in a word. Christ-like, a life like Christ. And that's the journey all of us are on spiritually. If you're a Christian, you've come to faith in Jesus, you believe you need to be saved, that Jesus can save you, that he will save you if you ask, you've confessed that to him, you've surrendered to his will, you've experienced salvation, you're on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment journey towards Christ-likeness. And Paul says... If you want to experience Christ-likeness, someone has to teach you how to do that. In other words, he's talking about behavior and beliefs here. Because Christianity is absolutely about beliefs. You have to know some stuff. Well, I'm teetering on other words. There is a difference between knowing and believing. You know you need to change your oil every 3,000 miles. But not all of you believe that. Because you don't. If you believe and you're deeply convinced, I need to change my oils, oil every 3,000 miles, you know what you do? You change your oil every 3,000 miles. You know I should brush three times a day and floss every day. But not all of you do. We won't point fingers. You know, but you don't believe. What's the difference? The behavior. And Paul draws an interesting relationship between Christian beliefs and Christian behavior. I want you to know something. Christianity is not just about what we believe. It should also be about how we behave, right? You do understand that a life genuinely impacted by Jesus Christ and his spirit living inside of you should change your behavior somewhat, right? Okay. Isn't the Bible filled with a lot of what we should do and what we shouldn't do? It's a lot about behavior. We spend a lot of time in church teaching behavior. How to give. How to forgive. How to be married. How to relate to others. How to serve. How to deal with unfair accusations, how to deal with anger, how to deal with depression, how to deal with hatred, how to deal with sadness, how to, how to, how to. We spend a lot of time. In fact, Paul simplifies. He's like, here's the job of the pastor. Your job is to first convince people to believe the gospel and then second, teach them how to do the right things they're not doing and how to stop doing the wrong things they are doing. That's why we come to learn, because someone has to teach us how to be like Christ, because we don't just naturally know. We have to be taught, and the world's not going to teach us that, because it swims in the different direction. And Paul says, that's at the root. I'm here to teach people the truth, which leads to godly lives. But he also says, there's an interesting relationship here. 
you could draw the following conclusion. If someone's living an ungodly life, what's the problem? They've either been taught something that's false that they believe, they've not been taught the truth which they should believe, or they have been taught the truth and they don't believe. I could give it to you this way. Let me give this to you in a main point. Right behavior follows right beliefs. Here's the relationship between Christian behavior and Christian belief. If you're spiritually unresolved this morning, this is a relationship between your actions and your thoughts. I'll say it this way. Right actions come from right thoughts, and wrong actions come from wrong thoughts. Unless you've got some type of serious disability, your behavior is a slave to what you think. Your foot did not decide today to come to church and have a civil war with the hand, and the two of you are 200 miles apart this morning. Your foot went where your mind told it to go. Have I lost you yet? I think one of the tragedies of Christianity that gets some of you stuck in a guilt cycle. You're saved, you're on your way to heaven, you love Jesus. You know there's sin in your life, and it might even be the same sins over and over and over and over, and you feel enormously guilty about it. Behavior. And you constantly go back to God and you say, God, this behavior is sinful before you. Please forgive me. And you know what? He does. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and he's just, and he forgives us of our sins, and he cleanses us with unrighteousness. And then, you know what? We stumble again in the same thing. And we look at that behavior, and we, and we feel bad, and we feel guilty, and we go back to God and ask forgiveness, but we're stuck in this bondage. Because we've understood Christianity 201, which says, when I sin, the Holy Spirit's going to let me go. 201. And then I need to respond that in a healthy way of confession, but we don't get to like the 301 part, which says, but can you identify the wrong thinking that's perpetuating that cyclical behavior? Because if you can change the thinking, the behavior will come along for the ride. Let's go back to changing the oil again. Now, if you're like me, you probably, if you bought a vehicle that had the owner's manual, if you're like me, you probably took that thing inside and read it cover to cover. With your highlighter, you got the Kindle version, downloaded that thing, and you just Wow. And you got to the part about maintenance. And for those 780 pages, you were just pouring over the details. And you were thankful for these forward-thinking designers who, with no desire for you know, your income in perpetuity, said every 3,000 miles to ensure best performance. Change the wheel. You read it, and you said, listen, I trust these experts. They designed it. I accept their definition. And because I believe what they say is actually the truth, I'm going to change the oil every 3,000 miles. Now, I'm probably the only person in the room who did that. Right? You talk to somebody else and they say, uh, yeah, I don't believe that. They're just, they, you don't really. I talked to my neighbor, Leroy, who used to be a mechanic back in the day, and he said, that's all just hogwash. You don't have to change oil. You can go 10,000 miles between oil changes with no problems. And so I don't trust the writers of that. I don't trust their motives. And so, you know, I know you should change your oil every 3,000 miles. But when I got that car, I was really nervous about 3,000 miles. And it clicked over to 3,001 on the odometer and it kept running. And I pushed it another 500 miles, and it kept running. And these little alerts started coming on on the dashboard. I just put tape over them, and it kept running. And I didn't change it till 10,000 miles. And they changed their oil, and I drove it another eight months, and it kept running. But eventually, you will pay the piper. And about 50,000, 60,000 miles, all kinds of lights are you going to run out of tape to go over those lights. And you're going to take it to your reputable mechanic who's going to ask you, did you change the oil every 3,000 miles? And with integrity in your heart, you're going to say, of course I did. <laughs> and they're going to say, well, your transmission is shot. And you're going to have an unpleasant dose of reality. 
And what will happen is you'll have an opportunity to change your thinking about oil changes. And you'll probably become an oil change evangelist. Because you disregarded the truth of the person who wrote the manual. And you came up with a diluted version. Because you knew you were supposed to change it every 3,000 miles, but you didn't believe you needed to change it every 3,000 miles until you ran into a life circumstance that brought you face-to-face with the error of your belief, and now as a result of that, your thinking has changed. And therefore, your behavior has changed. You know I'm not talking about oil changes, right? If there's a behavior in your life That's not honoring the Lord. And I know enough of you to say, my, my guess is you'd like that to change. You'd like the orthodontist to straighten that out. You have two options. You can try and just will yourself into self-discipline and control and do all this behavior modification stuff and zero in on the behavior. And you're going to be in a guilt cycle. You're going to be in a reward and penalty cycle. I don't want to get too deep into psychological talk this morning. You have this relationship with food sometimes. You look at yourself. You want to figure out where bad thinking happens in your life? Well, I don't think I'm like that. What, start learning to be aware of what's going on in your head when you look in the mirror. Oh, I'm aging horribly. Oh, I'm aging wonderfully. I'm too big. I'm too little. I'm just right. And then you start rewarding or penalizing your whole life based on those thoughts you had in the morning. I look really good today. I deserve chocolate cake. I look really bad today. I don't deserve to eat. I look really good. I deserve to go spend money that I don't have on clothes I can now fit in. Hello? Our behavior follows our beliefs. Our actions are slaves to our thoughts. Paul understands this and looks at it spiritually and he says here's what i see i see a whole island that's out of order and i could just get up and tell them you're all out of order and you're going to hell in a handbasket please don't just clip that and make a meme out of that from me okay (laughs) gene where are you don't (laughs) paul is able to step back and say hmm I see a lot of wrong behavior. Where is that coming from? Wrong thinking. So how do I get at that? We've got to pull out all the weeds. Listen, I spent way too much time pulling weeds. That's the downside of having like shrubs at home is weeding. And like you can just kind of pull a couple leaves off, but you really want that weed to stop. You know what you got to do? And pull that joker out by the root. It's always better after a rainy day. That's free, okay? You pull. And listen, you pull that thing out of, you pull that weed out of there by the root, that weed is not growing up there again. Now, I can't promise that two inches over, another one will grow up. But thinking works that way. If you're just clipping off the outsides of it, it's going to grow right back. You've got to get down to the root of that thing. And Paul recognizes this. He says, I see a whole island out of control. It's because of bad thinking. And he starts reverse engineering. And he's like, well, where are they going to? And then he says, they have to be taught. They don't know. The Cretans don't know what they don't know. We've got to teach them the truth. Well, who's going to do that? The Christians. Well, let's look at them. Their houses are a mess. The husbands and wives have horrible relationships. The old men, the old women have no self-control. They need to be taught that. The young men, the young women, they don't get along. They live a promiscuous life. They're chasing sex and sleeping around, and they're not building stable families. And these are the Christians. Well, why are their houses out of order? Well, they're getting bad teaching from the church. We need to get the bad teachers out and get the good teachers. Paul reverse engineers the whole thing back to saying, Here's the solution. We have the truth, but the truth has to be taught. The truth has to be taught by credible leaders whose lives are blameless and credible and attractive. And the bad teachers who aren't teaching the truth need to be silenced and removed. And we need to teach it starting in the church 
so that older men can mentor younger men, older women can mentor younger women, and that our lives can get in order and open up to their community so they can see what right behavior looks like and be attracted to the right thinking that leads to the right behavior, if that makes any kind of sense. If it doesn't, I'm out of the time. I have a lot on it, and I've got to move on. But I want you to know, this will help you a lot. I'm not trying to TED talk this because you can really apply this to more than just Christian stuff, but it's because this is the way that God designed us. Our behaviors follow our thinking. And if there's a godly behavior that you know you should be doing more of, that you're doing none of, if you want to see it change, ask God to help you think differently about that. If there's something you're doing a lot of that you should be doing none of, ask God to help you think differently about that. Because once he can change your thinking, you surrender to those thoughts. This is why Paul writes, he gives you the keys to this in Romans 12. Be trans, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by what? Up here. You need a hard reset in the way that we think. Because if I think the thoughts of Christ, I'll live the life of Christ. I can't make it any simpler than that. Uh, if I would have done it in a third the amount of time, it would have been simpler. But I'll, I'll try that next time through. Let's move on. I've got, I got to hurry on. Second piece I want to look at here is Paul's marching orders to Titus. I left you on the island of Crete. Now that sounds like he abandoned him. Like, Titus, it was great visiting you, but there was one boat and I took it. So <laughs> I want you to understand that Paul has another assignment he wants Titus to be involved in. And so he wants him to wrap up his assignment on Crete. I don't know what the other assignment was, but the indication through the letter is that Paul wants Titus, he wants to redeploy him to another assignment, but not until he finishes the orthopedic work on Crete. So he's going to be very specific about what he needs to do. I left you on the island of Crete so you could, epidiorthos, complete our work there, and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. You need to see the order here. Oh, I didn't even recognize Okay, you need to see the order of the order. Paul says there needs to be order on Crete. And there's an order in which you need to bring order. Paul is a systematic thinker. We're going to start with the leaders of the church. We need order in the church leaders. We need order in the church congregations. We need order in the Christian homes. That can produce order on the island. And that's the order of the letter. Okay, a lot of order there. A lot of orders. He says you need to start with the leadership of the church. Isn't it interesting that Paul says in the dominoes of seeing transformation in the community, it starts with having godly leadership. Everything rises and falls on godly leadership because they're the ones that are going to teach. And they need to do two things. The teacher needs to have solid content and solid character. You can't have one without the other and be effective. You can have really solid content and live a hypocritical life. You know what it does? It just totally torpedoes all of the content. I do not need to start listing a laundry list of names of, it breaks my heart. Christian leaders, oh, who's teaching so solid, life-changing. And then they're exposed for being a total hypocrite. And living a life completely inconsistent with that. And I don't say that throwing stones. I am a Christian leader. And I am subject to the same lens of all these other leaders. And I am not immune to any of the same things. What I, like to, what I want to tell you though is I'm very aware of that responsibility that I have before the Lord. And it presses down and it shapes decisions that I make in real time. And I don't say that for your pity or for your empathy. It's just what comes along with this calling. But you can also have solid Christian character and not have the ability to communicate godly truth to people. And that's not useful. Paul balances this out. He says the leaders in the church, here he uses the word elders. In a couple verses, he'll use the word church leader and overseer or manager. In your notes, I go into much, I don't want you to be tripped up over the title. Throughout all his letters, Paul uses the terms for elder pastor, which means one who feeds, elder, one, one who is mature and wise, and the, the, the word for overseer or manager from where we get administrator. He uses those words interchangeably, and what that means is that he's not trying to assign a one-size-fits-all title, but he's trying to give you a composite idea. A, a pastor, elder, manager in this days carries all of those components in one person. They have to be able to feed people through 
teaching and through care. They have to be able to manage and oversee people and ministries well, and they have to be mature and wise. And so any one of those words by themselves tells part of the picture, but all three of them together, and Paul uses those words interchangeably to demonstrate the full amount of character that's there. There's more in your notes to that. I just don't want you to get hung up on titles. Well, here he says elder. There he says pastor. Then another time he talks about another group of people in Greek, diakonos, the deacons. I don't want to muddy the waters for you. I want to simplify. He's talking to Titus and saying, you have to appoint these leaders. Don't let the people vote for it. Appoint them. They're not mature enough to vote in their own leaders. And you can see Titus saying like, okay, Paul, well, we've got leaders in the church, but you're already telling me the current people who muscled their way into leadership are false teachers. How did that happen, Paul? Because there's no order. I've wondered that a lot of times. Well, how did these teachers teaching bad doctrine get permission to be teachers in the church? They had no process by which you became a leader. They were that young. They had no process. If you came in and you just spoke loud enough and smart enough and educated enough, you drew a crowd. And people listened to what you had to say. And they paid you well for it, Paul says. They saying, no, Titus, we need, a new, we need some order here. From now on, leadership does not bully their way in. They're appointed. Well, who should I pick? Paul says, awesome, I've got a long list of 17 qualifications. He sent Timothy like 13 qualifications or more. If you add together the list that Paul sent Timothy and Titus and you take out the redundancies, there's 30 characteristics, Paul says, a church leader should have. Let me read you a few of them. An elder must live a blameless life. Well, that just eliminates all of us from contention. But the Greek word means someone who has nothing to grab onto. And I used this illustration earlier. If you've ever seen one of those uh, manufactured rock climbing walls and they have the little handles on them that you could climb your way up, imagine one of those walls that two-thirds of the way up, the people assembling it stopped working for the day. And you were climbing two-thirds of the way up, handle over handle over handle, and you get to that place where they stop working, and there's literally no handles for the next 60 feet. He's saying a leader with a blameless life has no handle that critics and naysayers can grab onto to tear down the credibility of your character or your teaching. That's what you're looking for. He must be faithful to his wife and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. Some pastors and teachers online have taken those sentences and made entire sermon series out of them. And you could do that. I don't have the time to do that. But what I want to let you know, Paul is not saying that a man must be married or else he can't lead in the church. And if you read this verse totally literally, He must be faithful to his wife, which means he must have a wife. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's talking about being a one-woman man. Not bigamy, not affairs. He's not saying that a husband whose wife has has died and he's still living is disqualified. He's talking about being faithful to the wife that he has, a one-woman man. And his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. And here's where we're, okay, should we, when we're interviewing pastors, do we need to interview all their kids too? What's Paul saying here? Keep in mind, he's talking to an island that at best has had Christianity there maybe 28 years. Maybe. There are men on that island who have gotten saved and are living wise God-honoring lives, but their spouses or their children haven't yet made that same decision. What Paul is saying here is, that man's first responsibility is bring the gospel into his own home. Rather than siphon away all of his passion to everybody else's homes while neglecting his own. And if he's not had the opportunity to minister Christ to his own children, then we ought not put them in a responsibility of leadership. Their first ministry is at home to their kids who are living under the authority of their parents. Okay, he's not talking about you know, adult children. He's talking about children who are living under the authority of their parent at home. If they're wild and rebellious, it's either the result of they are resisting the gospel that dad is trying to teach, or dad's not teaching the gospel at home. And in either case, it's going to compromise their ministry and they ought not lead. Okay, let's keep moving. Verse 7, more qualifications. Church leader, now he changes. He doesn't say elder anymore. He says a church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. Now, why does it say manager, Greek word steward? Because this is not Phil Nauer's church. Grinds my gears when my colleagues in ministry say, well, at my church, we dot, dot, dot. And at my church, we, but friend, it ain't your church. It's his. It's not my church. It's not Phil Community Church. 
heaven help us all if we change the sign, run and go find another church. It's not my church. It's not James' church. It's not Zach's church. It's not the board's church. It's not your church. It's his church. It's his. However, I am a steward of something that belongs to him. Yikes. Not just James and Chelsea, but yikes. <laughs> That's not lost on us. Because it belongs to him, and I'm kind of the house sitter. And I will give account for things in this church that you never will. You'll be given account for how you respected and honored your leaders. You will give account for that. I will give account for a whole longer list of things. That's why I say don't volunteer for this unless you're chosen. Then go for it. But don't just, hmm, that looks like interesting. I want to dip my toe in those waters. No. Sharks and sheep will bite that toe off. But he recognized a church leader as a manager, not an owner of God's household. So he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Some of these things I think are relatively self-explanatory. He must not be a heavy drinker. And now some people say, hmm, so he can be a light drinker, a medium drinker. Uh, all that I'll say is that it was in a culture where, they, where drunkenness was not only in, common but encouraged. Paul's saying, listen, leaders in the church have to have a healthy relationship to alcohol. Because it can cost you your ministry and compromise your integrity. And so he's like, leaders, you know, the leaders in the church can't be heavy drinkers. Can't be violent, can't be dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home. Now, why does Paul add that? Because if you were a pastor, your house was also a church building. They owned no land, they owned no property. And so back in this day, pastors had to actually enjoy being hospitable by having guests in their home. If you were a pastor and you did not like having guests in your house, you weren't going to make a good pastor on the island of Crete because you really wouldn't want people to come over. You'd resent while they were there. You wouldn't want them to have the good food or use the good bathroom, and you'd want them to leave as early as possible. That would not make a good pastor. You had to be hospitable back in the day to having people in their home. You had to, live, you had to love what was good, live wisely, and be just, live a devout and disciplined life. And if that's not enough, we've got a few more. Have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Now, see, that's cool. Teachers are also students. Your teachers, if they're good teachers, have teachers. And they are also students. On our best day, the best pastors are simply repeaters. That's all we are. We're not trying to come with you with some new thing not found in any Bible, in any store, anywhere. Run from those people. All we're trying to do is hear what's already been said and communicate it to you in a way that is accurate and consistent with already been said that inspires life transform, life trans, not life transformation, whole different ministry there. Life transformation in your life. A elder must have a strong belief in what they were taught. You never outgrow learning from the Lord. You never outgrow it. You never master this book. This book masters us. And so I want you to know our, our teachers here are also students. People who walk close enough to me know I am an eager, hungry student. I have to be. Tim Keller said it this way. The best theologians in the world are 90% accurate in what they believe, and there's probably 10% of what they believe that's not accurate. The problem is we don't know which 10% it is. I'm a, I'm a student of the Holy Spirit. Our leaders are students. And we believe what we've been taught so that we can teach that to you. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they were wrong. Let me lift one statement out of this. I've dwelled too long here. One statement, and I think you'll agree with this. Because church leaders have high responsibility, they ought to be held to a high standard. Amen? It's awkward teaching this as a pastor. It doesn't offend me when you say amen. I need to be held to a high standard. God holds me to a higher standard than anybody could hold me. And James and Zach and all pastors everywhere. All church leaders are held to a high standard. Deacons and elders and admin board members and bishops and prophets, whatever titles that they take, if you're a leader in the church, you have high responsibility. You are tasked by God with the responsibility of teaching people the truth that leads to godly living and not teaching them untruth, which leads to chaos. That's a huge responsibility. I can't think of anything more eternally important than teaching people the truth which can lead to a godly life. But you see, the people on Crete got it twisted. 
Those early leaders said, we have high responsibility, so we deserve high privileges, high rights, wealth, ease, power. In the book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell. Some of you have read it and still have a 30-year-old copy collecting dust on your bookshelf. He talks about the law of the lid. An organization will not rise higher than its leadership. Leadership is the lid on any organization. Everything rises and falls on leadership. An organization will not grow beyond the capacity of its leaders. He draws on these letters for those principles. He also says a leader must give up to go up. In other words, becoming a leader isn't about getting more rights, more power, more privilege. It's about giving up rights and power and privilege in order to lead people. But there were groups of people in this church who saw church leadership as an opportunity to feed their ego because it feels really good to have a couple hundred people rearrange their schedule to come and listen to you talk. Pay your salary to talk to them and to teach them. Makes you feel some kind of way about among your academic buddies. And Paul is saying that's not what leadership and leaders should be motivated by. Leaders have high responsibility before God. Therefore, they ought to be vetted very, very, very carefully because of the influence that they wield. And he lists these 30 characteristics. I don't know any human that checks off all those boxes perfectly, but the question is, is that the desire of their heart? Is that the trajectory of their life? You ought to have high standards for all of your Christian leaders. Now, when I say high standard, I think most of us agree where we disagree is what the standard should be. The Bible provides us the standards by which we measure our leaders. But I've shared with you before, all of us, including myself at times, can carry unfair standards that we measure leaders by. Well, I listen to this leader on TV, and I like their presentation, and you just can't hold a candle to them. I'm not them. No kidding. And they're not me. They have to spend all that time on their hair. I don't. I've got that time for prayer. You know, <laughs> I can study more because all I have to do is shave it. I don't have to condition or zhuzh it. I don't have to do any of that. Well, man, if you just did these three things, your church will grow to 3,000 people like his church. That's his responsibility. God gave an anointing on him to lead 3,000 people. I'll lead a couple hundred. I'm not going to be held accountable for his assignment. Oh, Rismo, if I was just like him, I would have more opportunities and more books and more people. Like, That's not my assignment. This is my assignment. I texted him at 3.30 in the morning. I didn't hear back until 8. He doesn't care. I was sleeping. Because I care about my family. I know he saw me across the grocery store and didn't shake my hand. I knew that he... We have to embrace, have high standards, but make them biblical. Okay. I have no more time. Let me go to the last... uh, We won't get to part four today either. We'll just land on three. We'll pick up four next week. Now Paul tells him, okay, here's what... We got to have order on the island. We got to have order among the leaders. Here's how you choose the leaders. And, oh, by the way, Titus, there's another companion step. Not only do you have to put in the right leaders, you've got to bring the kibosh on the wrong leaders. We're going to have to remove some leaders. Here's who they are. Here's what they're doing. And here's how I want you to proceed. We'll land on this. It says, there's many rebellious people who are engaging in useless talk and they're deceiving others. This is especially true of a particular group of teachers who insist on circumcision for salvation. Now, Paul's very gentle in how he wants Titus to approach them. They must be silenced. Comes out of just a great Marvel movie, silence them. You know, we hear that, yeah, okay, boss, yes, boss. No, no, no. But I mean, it's like he's pretty serious here. We can't kind of tippy-toe around. We need to silence them because they're turning whole families away from the truth with their false teaching. People's lives are turned away from Jesus towards hell because of them. And they do it only for money. So verse 12, here's what we do. Even one of their own men, he, talks, he quotes a, a poet from Crete, has said about the island people, the people of our island are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. And here's how Paul weighs in. Yeah, that's true. You are. 
So reprimand them sternly. But here's the kicker. You have to see this. All godly discipline is redemptive. Why does Paul want him to come down hard on these people? To make them strong in the faith. Paul holds out some hope. Listen, these are not just people that we should just cut off and excommunicate, send them to hell and throw away the key. He says, listen, we do need to confront them. But we need to confront them with the truth and give them an opportunity to see the truth and turn away from their false teaching to true teaching so they can become strong in their faith. We're not just about disciplining people. We want to rehabilitate people and give them an opportunity. They might not take that opportunity, but at the very least, Titus, when you confront them, you need to show them chapter and verse where they're wrong and show them chapter and verse what the truth is. And in that moment, give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to open their eyes to the truth. They have to stop listening to Jewish myths and commands of people who have turned away from the truth. Verse 15, everything's pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. A lot more to be said there. I don't have time. Such people claim they know God, but deny him by the way they live. Now that's a mouthful. Those are the people who say, oh yeah, I know God. I go to church. Well, where does it show up in your life? Well, I go to church. I endure it. I even volunteered once with the kids. I give. Every time the pastor asks for money, I give. He's drawing a line between people who have an intellectual understanding of God and people who really believe in God and salvation through Jesus that has made a change in their life. And he's saying, it's possible for you to get all the questions on the multiple choice test right and have a life that doesn't mirror Christ-likeness at all. That's what he says is going on here. These people have so much education, but there's no godliness. And here's his summary of them. Nice way to be described. They're detestable, disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. So what do we do with all this? Here's the the main idea, number three, as I close with this. Salvation requires God's grace alone and our faith in Jesus alone, period. Adding any conditions to these is false teaching, which has to be confronted and silenced. Here's what we can assume properly. These false teachers were teaching more false things than just what they taught about salvation. There's a lot of stuff that they were teaching that was wrong. And Paul doesn't address all that other stuff, but he draws a line in the sand and says, look, here's the one thing you can't mess with as a teacher. And that is, what do I have to do to be saved? At the end of the day, this is the one thing we need to sing the same song the same way. And Paul says salvation is by grace alone through faith in Jesus alone, period. And what these teachers were saying is, yeah, you got to have faith in Jesus. And also, if you're not already, you need to be circumcised, fellas. Yeah, welcome to the kingdom and thank you for raising your hand. If you could line up out back, that's not an easy appeal. And in addition, you need to take on the whole Jewish way of life. They were saying that the only way God will accept you is by faith in Jesus, and then you have to behave a certain way to be saved. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You're not saved because of how you behave. You're saved so you can behave better. Does that make sense? And Paul says, this is the type of teaching we can't just give them a little leash. You need to confront them and silence them because people who are believing this think they're saved when they're not. And we need to deal with it redemptively, but firmly and directly. We need to confront these men, these teachers, and say, you're not going to teach anymore because of these things you've been teaching However, let me show you in the scriptures how this is incorrect and explain to you again the message of the gospel through Jesus. How do you receive that now? And it's not the gateway back into teaching. It's the narrow pathway to Jesus. But Paul says to Titus in the church at the end of the day, there's nothing more important than teaching people the truth about salvation. And anybody who gets that wrong has no permission or platform to be able to teach. They have to be confronted in silence. Because what are we trying to do, Titus? We're trying to bring order into the church. So that the people who are coming from these messed up homes can hear truth, which inspires godly living in their home. And that godly living in their home is going to start tumbling out into the neighborhoods and the communities where they live. And other people outside of God's kingdom will see God's kingdom lived out in the public square. And they will be attracted to this change in behavior 
that comes from a change in thinking, that came from the truth, which comes from the truth, and we'll see this order lived out among our whole island. That's what this is about. So my question for you is this. If the holy orthodontist sat down with you today and said, what should we straighten out together? What would that conversation be like for you today? As you and the Holy Spirit reflect on all that you've heard today, my guess is that most of us probably would be quick to say, this is an area of the way that I think or the way that I live or how I feel or what I'm doing or not doing that I know needs to be straightened out. There's some things I should be doing that I'm not. Oh, I want to read my Bible. I know, I know I should read my Bible, and I should pray, and I should, and I should, and I should. There's all these behaviors. The problem is I just don't want to. My thinking's not there. Well, that's a good place to start. Lord, will you stir in me an appetite to desire the healthy things I know I should be doing but are absent from my behavior? What a great place to start. Or, Lord, I know... I have been doing some things, saying some things that are dishonoring to you. You know I want that to change, and I just feel like I'm stuck in neutral. God, can you help me go one step below the weed into the root and help me see what is broken in my thinking that's manifesting itself in this behavior? And can you help me take that thought captive and root it out and plant the truth in its place so that out of that truth, I'll live behaviors that match up with who Jesus is. What a great place for us to start. Let's pray together. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? Worship team, will you come quickly? Went six minutes over my allotted time. I allotted it to myself, but I mean, I still went over that. My apologies. In this quiet moment, I do as best you can. I want you to just... Allow your heart an open pathway to hear from God through his Holy Spirit. Really just mull that question over. Holy Spirit, I'm voluntarily listening into you today, and I want you to examine the crooked ways of my thinking so that you can make them straight. That's an exercise that takes practice. It does. We have to be taught it, but then we also have to live it out and have some experience in that. But I'm convinced that the Bible is true when it says that the renewing of our mind will transform the way that we behave. And I think a lot of us as Christians, we, we, we live with so much guilt because we know our behaviors don't always line up to Jesus. We know we can have forgiveness when we stumble, but we fear that there won't be any long-term change that we'll be battling these same battles the rest of our life. And I, I just want to let you know that Paul makes it clear that by opening up your thought processes to the Holy Spirit too, you can see victory over those strongholds. He can help root out that thinking that changes those behaviors in a way that honors the Lord. And it produces peace and freedom in your life too. But it begins by just a, a bold and a brave surrender. Say, Holy Spirit, I'm going to let down the walls to even how I think about me and you and others. And allow your fingers into that. So that there can be the weeding out and the transplanting and the renewing that's necessary. But maybe it's even more basic than that for you. You know today as you sit here that you need to be saved. We're, you're, you're broken. and You can't fix yourself. You're wrong before the Lord, and you know it. Well, that's part of the truth. The truth is that we've all sinned, and we're all wrong before God. We've all fallen short of the standard of Christ-likeness, every last one of us. In that we also know that we deserve punishment for that. The wage of that type of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But you have a choice. You can take your wages... Or you can receive a gift. The wages of our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. It's a gift that comes by grace from God to even give us the gift. And faith in Jesus. That's what you bring to the party. You just believe and you're deeply convinced that you need to be saved. That he can save you and you will save you. You don't have to add on to that a whole bunch of behavior changes. It's a gift. And so if you believe that, then you just confess with your mouth the Lordship of Jesus, which is just a representation of what you believe in your heart that God raised him from dead and you'll be saved. So in this moment right now, if you want to be saved because you know you need to be saved and Jesus can and will save you, 
All you need to do is confess that to Jesus. Just confess it to him right now. What do you mean confess? Tell him with your words what's true in your heart. That Jesus, I need to be saved because I've sinned against you. I don't want what I deserve, but I'll receive what I don't deserve, and that is eternal life and forgiveness from you. I welcome your spirit to come and live inside of me, to teach me how to live a godly life. And I am choosing today a life of cooperation and surrender to your lordship, a life of saying okay every day to the Holy Spirit. In your name I pray. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with Him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.